That was a very hearty hello. That was good. Ooh. I'm going to pray for us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that your word will do for us tonight what you promise it will do. We pray that it will warn us where we need to be warned, teach us where we need to be taught, so that we might persevere in trusting Jesus and we might be presented mature in him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, uh, if you remember, we looked at that incredible passage uh, about really just how wonderful our Lord Jesus is. So I want you to actually open up your Bibles now uh, and just scan back to last week's passage, the passage before, the one we just read, uh, and just remember what we saw, how we saw Jesus is the centre of everything. Uh, And so we saw how everything was created by Jesus and everything was created for Jesus, including us. So if you want to know why you are here, if you want to know why God made you, he made you for Jesus and for his glory, that's why you exist. And more than that, we saw how Jesus is the centre of all God's plans for fixing everything, even this microphone, there won't be microphones ringing out in the new creation, but uh, because we won't need them. Uh, So I'm just going to let the guys fiddle with the microphone so I don't deafen people. Troy's giving me a smile, so that should just something good happen. No, just keep talking, he said. Anyway, let's go back to it. Look again at last week's passage. Didn't you see how Jesus is the centre of this first creation? Not just everything in this creation was made by and for him, but he is the centre of the new creation. Uh, He is the centre of God's saving of everyone. Uh, And so every person on earth needs to hear about Jesus. There is no other way to be saved. Every person on earth needs to trust in Jesus. That is how important the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Uh, And a couple of weeks before that, go back with me now to chapter 1, verse 6, what we saw there was how wherever the message of Jesus is preached, wherever the one true gospel is preached, it bears fruit, it grows. And, And what we see in the first chapter of Colossians is that the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most powerful, the most important, the most significant message or or force, or whatever you want to think of it as, the most powerful thing in all of history. Now, we know that, don't we? That's one of those questions for you to answer. We know that, don't we? Yes. That is the gospel you believe if you are a Christian. You believe there is nothing more important than that, nothing more wonderful than that, nothing more powerful than that. But the thing is, often, it doesn't look like it is the most powerful and significant force in history. By God's grace, we have the blessing of being a part of a strong church, uh, and we have lots of brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage us and to meet together with, but when you think about it, we are a very small number compared to the world around us. And even when you combine all six of our congregations as a church, and even when you combine it with all the other faithful Christians meeting in this area and other churches, we are a small number compared to the number of people who live even within a couple of kilometres of here. And then when we share the gospel with our friends and family, Sometimes, wonderfully, they say, I want to trust in Jesus, but often they just don't seem interested, do they? I know many of us here have parents, we have brothers and sisters, we have friends who we've longed to share the gospel with, we've tried to share the gospel with, but the gospel doesn't just seem powerful to them. If anything, it just seems a matter of indifference to them, just doesn't compel them like it compels us. And in our society, if you think about our society, it is more and more dismissive of the gospel. So even over just the last 10 or 20 years, the gospel has gone from being a respected message, even if you don't agree with it, to to something that now is mocked and made fun of 
in our society. So it's easy to get discouraged and think, well, maybe the gospel isn't that powerful. Maybe the message about Jesus isn't that important. And for the Christians back in the time of the New Testament, the time Paul was writing this letter, there was another reason to doubt because he was the Apostle Paul. And he was, after the death, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, he was the face of the gospel. He was the most important person in the spreading of the gospel. He was the number one servant of the gospel, if you like. And where was he writing this letter from? From prison. So here he is telling them the gospel is the power of salvation. The gospel is the most important thing in all of history. And how's it going for you, Paul? Not working that well, is it? He was in prison in Rome. He was doing it tough. So it didn't take much for people to ask, why should we listen to him? Why should we stick with his gospel, especially when far more impressive looking, far more successful looking preachers would come along and would come with their persuasive sounding arguments, if you look down at chapter 2 verse 4, and surely people would ask, well surely a servant of the gospel would look like that, wouldn't he? A servant of the gospel would be much more impressive than the Apostle Paul and certainly wouldn't suffer like the Apostle Paul does. But Paul says, actually, if you understand the gospel, then you'll know that is exactly what a servant of the gospel will look like. Because that is how God works. God works through weakness. It's incredible how even after 2,000 years, people still get led astray by persuasive sounding arguments by people who look impressive and sound impressive. But no, God works through weakness. That's what we're going to see in this passage. So let's look at the passage. Come with me now to verse 24. Uh, There are some things you read in the Bible and you just skate over them because you've read it a hundred times before or you you think you know what it says. But just stop and think about what he says at verse 24 and you realise it's absolutely outlandish. It's just one of those outlandish comments. Look there, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Isn't that an incredible thing to say if you think about it? Not, I'm ashamed of my sufferings, which is what false teachers would have liked, you know, said he should be ashamed to suffer like that. Not, I put up with my sufferings, which is sort of how I sort of tend to think about suffering. Not even, I cope with my sufferings without whinging about it. He says, I count it as a joy when I get to suffer. Now, is there something wrong with him? Uh, And by the way, he wasn't talking about minor inconveniences. He's not talking about, you know, someone pushing in in front of him in the queue. He's not talking about missed appointments. He's writing this letter from jail. If you read the book of Acts, more than once, he was smuggled out of town with a death sentence over his head. More than once, people lined him up to stone him to death. And the thing that hurt him more than anything was he was rejected and his message was rejected by so many of his own people, the Jews. And yet he says, I rejoice. How can he do that? And for that matter, why does he do that? Why does he rejoice in his suffering? Well, the rest of this passage actually gives us the reason why. So reason number one, it's because he was suffering for Christ's body. He was suffering for the church. It wasn't like Paul was someone who just enjoyed all suffering. It wasn't just like, oh yeah, bring it on, I just love whatever you can throw at me. He he enjoyed it, he, he rejoiced in it because he was suffering for a purpose or actually for a people. He was suffering for people he'd never met. He'd never met these people in Colossae, most of them, and he'd never met us. But he was suffering so that people throughout the world of his time and then throughout all of history could hear the gospel and so be saved. So he's saying, if my suffering achieves that, 
And I don't just tolerate it, I count it as a joy. It's a privilege. In other places, Paul deals with how we should respond to suffering that come because of our own sin. Or it talks about the discipline God brings upon us. Uh, in other places, he talks about the suffering that just happens because we live in a fallen, broken world. And he talks about persevering with joy. But here, he's talking about a specific suffering because he's preaching the gospel. Suffering for the church, persecution because he is with Christ. And he says, that is a privilege, so I rejoice. Which brings us to his second reason, which is he rejoices because his suffering is necessary for God's plans to happen. His suffering is central to God's plan for the world. So look at how he puts it next. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for you. That's what we just looked at. And he says, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body. That is the church. Now, what does he mean there? I think this is one of the most difficult verses in Colossians. So put your thinking caps on. Uh, At first glance, it sounds like he is actually saying something heretical there. You see that? Do you, do you feel uncomfortable with what he says there? Because he is saying there was something lacking in what Christ did. And I hope you believe there is nothing lacking in what Christ did in paying for your sin. So when Christ died on the cross, he paid for your sins once for all. So didn't, you know, when you ask, didn't, hang on, how could it be lacking? Didn't his sufferings pay for my sin? The answer is yes, there was nothing lacking in terms of Christ's suffering to pay for sin. But now, Paul is saying, now the next stage of Jesus' work is happening. Jesus suffered everything that needed to be suffered on the cross to pay the price for the sin of humanity. But now the next stage of God's plan is happening, which is the world needs to hear about the suffering and death of Jesus. People need to be saved by trusting in Christ and in his death. And Paul and other people need to suffer so that that can happen. See, that is the suffering that is lacking. See, Jesus made it very clear that just as people rejected him, they would reject people who preach his gospel. Just as people persecuted him, they would persecute people who preach his gospel. Do you remember how Jesus said, no servant is greater than his master? His point was, whatever they do to your master, which is Jesus, they'll do to you if you want to follow him. What's good enough for me is good enough for my servants, Jesus says. And so when someone like Paul suffers for sharing the news of Jesus, they are actually continuing Jesus' job. They are walking in Jesus' footsteps. And so Paul says, if I get to suffer like that, alongside Jesus, if I get to suffer to continue Jesus' work, and especially if I get to suffer so that people like you can hear the gospel, I'm not going to moan about it. I'm going to rejoice. I'm not going to be ashamed of it. I'm going to rejoice. Because isn't that the greatest privilege you can possibly have to suffer for Jesus and to suffer so that people would hear the gospel and find salvation? Now, we are not the Apostle Paul. I'm not aware of anyone here who had a blinding experience on the road to Damascus, the road to Bexley for that matter. Uh, Most of us will never suffer like he did and most of us are not called to take the gospel to the Gentiles. We are not the apostle to the Gentiles in that sense, but the same is actually still true for us. When we share the gospel and someone mocks us, don't be disheartened. When you share the gospel and someone says, how can you believe that? Don't be disheartened, rejoice, because it's actually a privilege 
to be mocked for Jesus. And when you are tempted to stay quiet for fear of what people think, speak up. Because when you stay quiet, you miss out on this great privilege. Paul wants us to know that by definition, a faithful servant of the gospel will not be loved by this world. Every so often, people, you know, some people sort of, you know, tickle my pride a little bit. And they say to me, oh, Phil, you're not like other ministers I've met. You know, I, I like you. I don't know what that says about other ministers. But at that point, I think I haven't done a good enough job. I haven't done a good enough job. Because if the world loves you, they're not listening to the message. You see, if you want people to love you, you'll never share the gospel with anyone because you'll be afraid that they'll reject it and reject you. And a faithful servant of the gospel, they won't look and sound persuasive by the world's standards. But they will love Jesus and they'll be willing to suffer anything so that other people can hear about him. So now having said that, that his suffering is part of and because of God's plan, now Paul spells out for us God's plan for the whole world. This is pretty amazing here. Paul is actually taking us into the mind of God. He's sharing with us God's plan for the world. So come with me now to verse 25. He says, I have become it, the church's servant, according to God's administration that was given to me for you to make God's message fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. That all sounds a bit confusing and all that talk about mysteries and all that, but what is he saying? He's saying God's plan used to be a mystery. That is, until Jesus came and revealed himself and revealed God's plan, it had not been revealed. But now, Paul says, now God has given me the job of making it fully known. Actually, that doesn't capture it quite well enough. It's literally to make God's plan happen, to fulfill God's plan for the world. Paul has the job of making what God has promised come to fruition. So what has God promised? What is this thing that used to be hidden but now has been revealed? Well, it's verse 27. It says, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery that has been revealed, the fulfillment of all God's plans for the world, is that Christ is in you, the hope of glory. Do you understand how amazing it is that Christ is in you? When you put your faith in Jesus, as I pray you have, when we trust in Him, Jesus comes and sets up residence in us. By His Holy Spirit, Christ makes us His own. And He says, you will now be with me in glory. You, you are locked in. You are mine. And so you will be with me in the new creation, in the heavens. In Ephesians, He calls it the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. I guarantee, Jesus says, you'll be raised with me to be a part of my people forever. I hope you understand how amazing that is. Just think about this, that the one who created the world and who everything is made for is in you. And then look, look down at chapter 2, verse 3, the one who all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him, that God the Son, that he is in you, that he has said, this one is mine, this one is in my kingdom. I hope you understand how wonderful that is, and I hope you know that for yourself. I hope you are someone who trusts in Christ. But the real 
mystery that's been revealed, the really amazing thing is that that is for all people. That's what had been hidden. That God wasn't just reserving that special privilege for one people, the Jews. It wasn't just for people like Paul. It is for everyone. It has been made known amongst the Gentiles. So Christ isn't just in a Jew like Paul. He is in you and he's in me. And he is in people from Greece and England and China and Nepal and any other country you can think of. See, God's great plan is for people from every nation to hear about Jesus and find salvation in Him. That is God's great plan because God's Saviour is not just for one small group of people. He's not just for the Jews. He's not just for Anglos. He's not just for whatever we divide ourselves into. Christ is for everyone. Now again, none of us are the Apostle Paul. None of us have been tasked and been told, you are the Apostle to the Gentiles. But I hope if you understand that that is God's plan, that you have the same priority as the Apostle Paul. See, God's plan for this world is that all people will hear about Jesus. So like Paul, we should devote ourselves to seeing that happen. Like Paul, we should struggle to make that happen. Like Paul, we should struggle in prayer for people. We should be willing to give things up to see that happen. Might be we should be willing to suffer to see that happen. And for us, it might be this, just the suffering of people mocking us for sharing Jesus with them. It might be the struggle of going out without what others have because we're generously supporting gospel mission to the nations. For many in this world, though, it is just like Paul, in imprisonment for saying, I am a Christian. That's what Christians in Iran put up with. That's what Christians in Saudi Arabia have to deal with. That's what Christians in parts of Africa have to deal with. That's what many Christians in China have to deal with. But whatever we face, Christians rejoice in it. Because we say, what a privilege it is to be a part of God's plan. To be a part of seeing all people find hope in Christ. But how does God actually make His plan happen? How does the gospel go to all people? Well, the amazing thing is God could do it any way He wanted. God is God. He can do anything. He could do it any way He wanted, but He does it through weak people like Paul and weak people like me and weak people like you speaking. That's how He does it. Which brings us to verse 28. Come with me. This is my favourite verse and this is the verse that is the centre of everything we're on about at St George North. In a little while, you're going to be invited to a welcome lunch in a few weeks at my house. I'm just going to share what I always share there with you now, because Colossians 1.28 is the verse I read out to tell people, this is what St George North is on about. So come with me to it. It says this, it says, We proclaim Him, that is Jesus, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. See, at the very centre of God's plan, the way God's gospel goes to all people is, we proclaim Him. We tell people about Jesus. We tell people about the Son of God who died for your sins and offers you eternal life. And we hear the word proclaim there and we think it's about Paul or, or Billy Graham. Billy Graham's son was preaching last night in Sydney. Anyone go to that? Anyone? A couple of people did. There, Katrina did. Well done. There you go. But we think of that, and I've even heard people say, you know, I love that at our church, Phil proclaims Christ. 
But the word actually covers all speaking. It is just as much talking about the kid's church leader who shares with a kid the news of the gospel. It's just as much talking about the youth leader who shares with the teenagers of our church. Just as much talking about the gospel team leader who shares it with the members of their gospel team on a Wednesday night. It's just as much talking about the scripture teacher. But it's also just as much talking about the workmate who shares it with their colleague over lunch. It's just as much talking about the parent who shares Jesus with their child over the dinner table. It's, it's formal and it's informal. When it says we proclaim Jesus, it doesn't mean we preach him to the crowds. It means we share him with our neighbour. However big or small, however formal or informal, if you want to be in line with God's plan, then it must be the centre of what we do. As a church and as individuals, we must proclaim him. But it doesn't end there. Look what it says. It says we proclaim him warning everyone. Part of proclaiming Jesus is warning people. You, you long that people would just want to come to know Jesus just for the, the positive side, if you like. He is the Son of God. He's the Lord. He, he, he's wonderful. He loves us. But also people need to hear that apart from Christ, there is only judgment and hell. If you do not trust in Jesus, there is no hope for you. So as we proclaim the gospel, as we proclaim Him, we warn people. But more than that, once we are Christians, we warn one another. See, because once you know Christ, your life has to change. In other places, Paul talks about how we use God's Word to rebuke one another, how we use God's Word to admonish and challenge one another. We don't just proclaim Christ, we care enough and love one another enough to challenge one another to keep living for Him. We don't just warn, look what it says, it says warning and teaching everyone. See, once you come to trust in Christ, a lot has to change. Your whole understanding of who you are has to change. Our whole understanding of how we live has to change. Our whole understanding of what we do with our life has to change. And so part of proclaiming Christ is teaching one another. But that can only be done with, look there, all wisdom. When he says that, he means God's wisdom, not ours. We, we don't teach our wisdom. We don't teach what we think. We teach God's Word. And especially we teach one another Christ, because look again down at chapter 2, verse 3, he says, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. It's interesting, I, f I find two problems Christians sort of come up with in this sort of thing, where they sort of think, oh, I'm not wise enough to teach anyone, because I'm not a very wise person, I don't know very much. And to that person, I want to say, do you know God's Word? Share it. You don't have to be particularly wise yourself because you're sharing God's wisdom then there's the problem of the arrogant Christian though who says oh I know so much let me share with you my wisdom and I go I don't want to know your wisdom I want to know God's word I want to know God's wisdom that's what I want you to share so that's how we play our part in God's plan we proclaim Christ warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom and we do that with a very clear and very set goal we do it so that look at verse 28 again so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I hope your great desire for yourself and your great desire for everyone you know is that on that last day when Jesus returns, He will say, you are my child. I hope that is your great desire for yourself and I hope it is your great desire for everyone you know. When Christ returns, we want to see every person in God's kingdom, don't we? We want to see every person saved. Isn't that what we want? 
I'm asking one of those questions there. Isn't that what you want? That's what I want. And more than that, I want to see every person here, every person I have the chance to encourage, mature. I don't want to just see you there and saved, I want to see you mature in Christ, because that's what God wants for you. I want to see every person growing in their knowledge of Jesus. I want to see every person growing in godliness, putting off the sin in our life and putting on the character of Jesus. He puts it another way down at chapter 2, verse 2, look down there. He says, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. I hope that is what you want for yourself. And I hope that is what you want for your brothers and sisters in Christ here. And I hope that is what you want for all people out there. That is what we long for, isn't it? And that drives everything we do as a church. This is why I share this verse at our welcome lunch. Because that drives everything we do at a church. Everything we do from jitterbugs with one-year-olds to nursing home visits with people a week away from their death. Everything we do is about proclaiming Him so that we might present people mature in Christ. And I hope that's what you value in your church, but I also hope it's what drives you in your own life. Now, of course, that's our aim, to see one another, to see everyone presented mature in Christ. And that's why we proclaim, warn and teach. But in the end, we can't make it happen, can we? In the end, people are responsible for their own decisions. And even more than that, God is sovereign. God is the one who works through our efforts. So I can plead with someone to put their faith in Jesus, but I can't make them. And I can plead with you, and I sometimes do from up here, I can plead with you to make Bible reading a priority in your life, but I can't make you do it. And I can warn you and I can exhort you that you need to be a part of a gospel team, you need to be meeting with your brothers and sisters in Christ around God's Word week in, week out, but I can't make you do it. And Paul knew that. But even knowing that, that you can't make people do it, didn't stop him pouring out every ounce of himself to proclaim, warn, encourage and teach people. And it was hard work even for the Apostle Paul. Do you notice how many times, just scan through the passage, just how many times he uses words like suffer, strive and struggle in this passage. Being a Christian is hard. It is a struggle just to keep trusting Jesus. It's a struggle to pray. It's a struggle to daily repent of our sin and keep turning back to Christ. It's even more of a struggle to warn and encourage and teach others, to proclaim Christ to others. It is really hard to share Jesus with someone and then have them reject Him, especially someone you love. It is really hard to challenge a brother or sister to do what they need to do to mature in Christ when they just don't seem to want to. It's really hard to persevere for praying for people day in, day out. But that's where verse 29 is a wonderful place for us to finish. Look with me. Paul says, I labour for this striving. You can get the sense of how hard he works. I labour for this striving with His strength that works powerfully in me. See, even as Paul laboured and strived and struggled, he knew God was at work in him and God was at work through him. We don't labour and strive in our own strength. It is God who gives us the strength and God who works through us. 
Our job is to proclaim and warn and teach and encourage one another and God will help us do it and he will work through our efforts. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful news of your gospel and we thank you that it is your power for salvation. And Father, we repent of the times when we doubt your power. But Father, also we pray that like Paul, we would strive unceasingly, we would devote our labours to proclaiming Christ, warning and teaching one another and everyone with all wisdom, so that we might see all people presented mature in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.